Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. We're live. All right. Hi, boy. Mr. Julian Bryden. MI2 Partners is joining us today. Uh, before we do, we're going to raise our glasses because uh, it is, you know, four o'clock to some people. Apparently, unfortunately, not, not for here. me, mate. All right, so some H two O for Julian. Yeah, gotta hit the uh, gotta hit the slopes later today. Exactly. Later tomorrow. Ooh, where are you? Japan or something? No, I'm in uh, Vale. Oh, Vale. Fantastic. That's really nice. Now, um, Mike, do you want to go through the uh, what in people who are watching should yeah, not do? Yeah, of course, of course. Don't take anything on this uh, uh, this uh, livecast YouTube channel as advice, uh, especially not from these uh, four skullduggerous individuals on this Friday. Um, this is meant to be entertaining and wide ranging and uh, educational. So there it is. And if you like it, smash the like button, share with everybody in the world that you know. Write a great commentary on how great. Julian was today and how enlightening he was with uh, conversations with Rodrigo and Richard. And subscribe. Excellent. And subscribe. Yes, and subscribe. <laughs> oh, my God. All, right, All of those things. <laughs> um, so thanks, Julian. You know, we have an audience that's uh, fairly quant-based and, um, and may not be super keen on the global macro stuff, though I think everybody is a, a secret global macro player, no matter what statistics that they use. Uh, maybe if you can give everybody a bit of your background, uh, what you put out, and um, yeah, just let everybody know a little bit more about you. Sure, absolutely. Well, thanks very much for having me on the show. Um, well, look, as you can see from the color of the beard and the sort of you know color of the uh, of the hair on the side, I've been in this business quite a long time now. Um, 
in fact, it's getting on for 35 years, 35, 36 years. Um, so various different places, you know, sitting on trading desks and sales desks, uh, FX, which I sort of really, and precious metals where I really cut my teeth, a uh, bit of fixed income, uh, consultancy advisory side on the policy side where I worked for a group called Medley Advisors. Um, and then um, went back to the dark side, worked for another bank. Um, and then eventually, basically 10 years ago, we launched uh, MI2 Partners. And it was really at the behest of a couple of clients who were reading my market commentary. And one of them put it in uh, it perfectly. And he said, you know, I can't pay you enough working at that crappy French bank you are working at. Um, why, why don't you go and set up your consultancy business? So we did. And uh, we've grown the business organically since then. Um, and uh, a few years ago, some of you may know, we launched a sort of joint business with Raoul Powell of Real Vision called Macro Insiders. So we kind of have two businesses. We have an institutional business and we have this sort of high-end semi-retail uh, business called uh, Macro Insiders. Well, that's interesting uh, to start with that because I, I know the story behind why Raul decided to stop managing other people's money and and do what he does today. Uh, it is an interesting. I, I, I'm curious to hear why you didn't just say, you know, what I'm going to run my own hedge fund and, and deal with a bunch of investors and bring in some assets for a right. today. So look, it's not my my particular skill set. Right? I was always sales and trading. Um, I wasn't a PM, um, and I, it, it's just something that we've never sort of gone down that route. I mean, could we go down that route? We've had conversations. People have approached us. You know, it's one of those things we thought about, and it's a particular, I would say, chagrin of a couple of my other senior partners, right? Because they have managed money. I mean, I've got guys who've managed billion dollar portfolios who work for me and that's kind of how we designed the the business um and i think they'd be gagging to do it right but it's just something we haven't got round to doing i found uh raul's comment once like five years ago i heard him say that it is a difficult um, much more difficult thing when you're in charge of other people's money and you have to make some tough decisions right. that he is more willing to do for his own pa or you know, be be emotionless about giving the right advice without right. the pressure of having to get the call. Look, I'm sure, and right this is something, right look, I mean, you know, whenever we've had these conversations with people about kind of managing money, I've always said to the team, look, if this is the route that we go down, you guys who've done it, you do it. Right? I'm going to try and stay as divorced from the physical action management of the money um, that I can because I don't – just not my skill set. But I mean, it is something, even when we write the research, we really, and the way that I set the firm up was to set it up as though you were managing money. So the mm. guys, you know, I'll sit and talk about the models and, you know, say, well, look, look this inflation picture is picking up or the dollar looks overvalued against the models. And then the other guys who are more adept at, you know, we've got a couple of guys who are very good at short-term trading, a couple of guys have managed bigger, slower moving portfolios, and they'll be going, okay, well, look, if that's what you think, if inflation is picking up, well, this isn't priced right against this. And then the guys who are more short term will say, okay, well, look, this week, the technicals are turning. We're going to hit it. 
right? And right. and it is that approach. And and if we hit it, this is where the stop loss should be, and this is where the take profit should be. So our approach, even though we write research, is very much orientated around trading. Got it. I kind of so, want to pull on that thread yeah. uh, that you just began. Uh, you just described a little bit of a longer term view, a shorter term, more tactical trading. If you can kind of just describe to us in broader terms and maybe get into a little bit more uh, uh, details, your general framework for making sense of the word of the investment world and kind of the toolkit that you deploy uh, towards your, your your calls. Yeah. So so it starts off really with this sort of structural view uh, that's built around a lot of uh, of models that we have or leading indicators in some cases, some of the models, some of the leading indicators. And that kind of anchors the view. Uh, it gives and those us, are internally developed models? Yes. And it gives us some I've sort of- I've never seen anything like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, you I post them once in a while on, on various things. I've shown them, you know, on Real Vision quite a lot. Um, you know, just be the classic kind of stuff. And then- uh, where we're looking at inflation trends, where we're looking at GDP. And we're typically, the, our approach is not to build some massive um, macroeconomic model, uh, you know, a la a central bank built, right? I just find those incredibly cumbersome and, and, not, and beyond the scope of what markets trade. Markets typically trade three to six months. And so you don't need to build some huge DSGE kind of model to to forecast that um what we tend to do a lot is we take a piece of data that exists today right that's tangible it's not a forecast it actually is out there and you twist it and spin it until it becomes useful to forecast something that we actually care about industrial production gdp and you know some countries are great at producing others are less i mean the germans produce data that will just blow your mind i mean you can find out what leather production is it makes sort of a bit questionable why you why they need to produce data on leather production in germany but you know you can you could what you know it gives you forecasts on the car industry or or you know glass production or chemical production all of this sort of stuff which on its own is is not necessarily useful but can be highly useful at catching turns and then there's those sorts of models and then there's just kind of valuation metrics i mean a classic being you know one of the reasons where we started to turn bearish on uh fixed income versus say break evens was and i'm just going to share this one with you and i'll show you what i mean uh share screen right so this is a classic kind of example so here you've got five-year break evens in orange and you've got Five-year conventional, sorry, the other way around. So here's the orange break-even. So we got into break-evens back in March, and we rode it up. But you're now, if you look at the divergence, you are greater than you were now heading into the taper tantrum. So there comes a point where you start to look at these valuation metrics, and you put them together with technicals, and you put them together with the macro models that's showing inflation actually starting to pick up now. And you just go, well, wait a second. Now I've got to actually get out of this thing. Now this thing is getting a little uh, extreme. So there's all sorts of, uh, there's various different types of models that we come together with. And then we have daily meetings where we talk about, you know, the trades that we've recommended. Do we still like those and markets developments? So it's very much the sort of decision-making process that you'd get within a fund. And that was the whole idea because I'm not interested in writing research 
pontificating about what I think GDP is going to be. Who gives a shit if you don't make money? Right. You're not writing those those way out of the money uh, uh, call options on gold because the federal government's going to, you know, 10 years from now is going to explode. You're actually legitimately looking like a fund would over the next. Correct. Correct. You're adding some skin in the game. You're adding some skin in the game to your call and and possibly even trading uh, yourself. And and, and yeah, I mean, certainly I know my colleagues probably do. And we run for macro insiders. I mean, this is one of the sort of bizarre things about um, when you look at, uh, at, say, the, the macro insider product versus the MI2 product. The MI2 product is very much aimed at an institutional client base. Uh, it will trade things that you can't realistically always trade on, you know, uh, a semi-retail basis like, you know, euro dollars or, you know, swaptions and stuff like that, right? Uh, but we actually run a concrete portfolio for the macro insider guys because that's actually what they want. So it's like long here, stop here, this is the idea. And, you know, it's all, you can go in and see it every month. We update it, as Raul does uh, as well. So, yeah, it's, um, we do run it on that, on that basis. It's, this is very trade orientated. So a real, a real craftsman approach to the idea of, of building that sort of ensemble that puts together the story. Correct. It's, it's, a, structure, it's a structural macro framework, right? Um, and it's worked. It gives us the repetition. I mean, we played, for example, the bond sell-off. We've been in it recently, um, but we've been looking for a while, and we played it in 2016. We caught it then. We looked at it in 2013, and actually it's very similar to the 2016 kind of model. It's just much more powerful, uh, arguably, Um, and so it just gives you this repetitive process that you can play time and time and time again within a broad sort of structural framework of where you think policy is, you know, and I'm lucky enough that having worked in that sort of background, I've still got lots of contacts in that space. So you can sort of get your head around where central banks think they are. You know, it's what I've always thought, and maybe you can uh, uh, tell me more if, if I'm right. I've always thought that you probably tend to piss off more global macro uh, gurus than the average Joe, because I feel like the global macro space is about the world's about to end high inflation. I've been hearing this since the beginning of my career, which isn't long. But what I've always found interesting is that when you align with them, there's a lot of retweets. And yes, we believe that there's going to be inflation. And then when the technical turn, you say, no, we actually need to take the opposite side. I think it's going to be bullish for equities or whatever. It doesn't align with these large global macro trends. And, and I'm more curious as to whether you have a lot of like enemies based on that. that no, I mean, so, come after you. <laughs> you know, look, a friend of mine once described it. He goes, you know, the best day for a global macro guy is the sky is gray and it's pissing down with rain. But it isn't just coming vertically. It's going horizontally <laughs> in the wind. So no matter how you stand, you cannot stay dry. Right. And he's exactly. absolutely he's absolutely right. I mean, look, I sat on an integrated trading room at Flora, you know, many banks, and the bond equity uh, FX guys used to hate, you know, those chipper glass half full bloody equity bastards, right? <laughs> Who just oh, it's just long and it's just going up, and all we really wanted to do is take that glass, smash it, and shove it somewhere where the sun don't shine, right? I mean, yes, there is that, but I've learned. Over the years, that's not how you make money, right? You make money by being long assets most of the time. 
And that being said, macro comes into its fore at times when those trends have become truly extended and truly swift, you know, overextended. And you catch that turn, and that's when you make an enormous amount of money. So, look, I mean, I'm bullish equities. I've been very bearish tech in the last couple of months and look, flagging things that we were watching. Um, we actually shorted uh, the NASDAQ a uh, week or so ago for the Macro Insider guys or recommended they short it. Um, we, and when I look out, I'm super bullish on assets, not necessarily very bullish on US assets, I'll be honest with you. Right. So I think I think that's where macro comes in. And, you know, I've got a buddy who trades equities and he's been trading my views for the last year or so. He's trading all in equities. Um, but it's a macro view. Right. How, how do you I think I think the the enemy making maybe comes from the the sort of the, the storytelling that is more deterministic rather than probabilistic in a mindset. Right. And, and I think um, you and uh, Raul talk about this a lot, and, and which I think is exceptionally important. And how do we how do we help um, investors think that way? Uh, is is there any tricks that we can we can impart so that that we can you know sort of get them moving off of the deterministic sort of here's where we are and here's what is going to happen and that's where you get in sort of the the fight. You've got a framework, and the framework is telling me something different. Right. It may manifest now or, or or later, but how do we how do we help people get across that so that I chasm? Think, you know, as I said, if if you go back to the sort of initial questions you asked me, I mean, how do we organize the firm? I mean, you can have a long term view, but unless it's confirmed with price, it's irrelevant. So we do quite a lot of stuff where we'll say. Oh, you know, we've been crapping on for the last six months about this. Well, it's kind of looking interesting. So if it actually breaks this level, maybe you want to have a stab at it. And so I think, you know, price to me is singularly important. Okay. The second thing that I think that I've learned over that I have learned over the years is that nothing is utterly linear. So when I was sitting on in this policy think tank, Medley Global Advisors, for a long time, my job amongst the team that I was running there was to kind of take the raw information that you got from a central banker and look at market pricing relative to, to that information. And central bankers are definitionally the, the, the proverbial super tanker, right? You cannot turn on dime. It's very difficult to turn on dime. And so they tend to be, you know, if you think of that as a long linear trade, right? They're hiking, they're easing. And what you see in markets is markets tend to be like a sine wave over that trend. They get way too bearish. They get way too bullish. And my job and the group that, that I ran was to kind of talk to hedge funds and, and and real money managers and sort of say, you know, we've moved quite a long way from where the central bank thinks. So you need to be a little cautious here. And that's one thing that I would advise people. I mean, look, you know, you can see this, this for example, this um, the recovery in the economy that we've seen, right? We've seen it 
we know it's happening. We know the vaccines have been coming for a while. They've started to work. And yet we've seen a lot of and we started to actually see what was interesting in, in September, October of last year. We started to see these value cyclical plays start to pick up and start to work. But what was very interesting is growth also worked, right? Growth also worked. And then you start to look into why is that? How is that possible? Right. And then you realize, oh, God, PMs actually had a shed load of cash in September, October on the on the sidelines. So no one had to make that hard decision of I'm going to sell my right. one over the other growth baby that I've loved for the last decade. You know, Apple, Amazon, Tesla, whatever. Right. To allocate to another. You know, you didn't have to make the decision. The actual giveaway was a couple of weeks ago when Warren Buffett sold mm-hmm. some Apple to buy uh, the oil company, I think Exxon, right? And then you're like, oh, shit, you haven't got any more cash, mate. So now this is when the, the risks start to rise. And so it's little tricks like like that. So I would say, you know, nothing is ever in a straight line. Uh, it tends to waggle around. It. You can trade that if you're so inclined. And the second thing is is really this that you just sort of have to mentally mentally you prepare yourself but until it's confirmed by price it is irrelevant right and don't try and jump the gun right wait for pricing to come to you set levels set entries, set stops. You can nibble something in tiny so that you can watch the progression and it's constantly, you know, either hitting you in the forehead going, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're too early, right? But don't do the classic kind of, oh, I'm going to stick them on the table. I'm going all in because almost certainly you'll be wrong in that situation. It's Risk management is hugely important. And and so I love that. I love the way you dig into the actual economic indicators and you will highlight that. Um, but you're right. You don't sort of act until price confirms. Correct. So, so I, I do love it. Go ahead, Richard. No, I was just going to say, uh, I'd love to dig a little deeper into some of these indicators. Uh, Niall Murphy has asked what medium long-term indicators, leading indicators you'd like to use apart from ISM. And I would add into the mix there a little bit of the shorter term as well. And you can add not only uh, leading in terms of economics, but just kind of like trading uh, some of the major asset classes uh, and their and their relevance to your overall framework. So, So look, I mean, ISM is bloody brilliantly good, right? I mean, it is incredibly good. And and some of the German data is incredibly good and some of the Japanese data. But all of those kind of PMIs, I mean, it, think, about, think about how a global economy works, right? I mean, if you, you know, manufacturing is a small proportion, but it tends to be the, the service sector tends to be pretty smooth. Obviously, this is a little bit like the global financial crisis in that the service sector gets whacked quite hard as well. But it's very unusual because typically recessions are caused by uh, capex and um, kind of some kind of inventory cycle, right? That you get some overbuilding and then you go into recession. And those are the things that first turn. So actually manufacturing may be small, but it's much more volatile and tends to drag the overall cycle with it. So anything related to manufacturing, I tend to watch. And if you think of it as a supply chain, right, where do you first see that kind of pickup? Well, you're most likely to see it in orders 
of those big manufacturing economies, right? So you look at the Germanys, the Japans, the Koreas, China, you can't really get that much data from them. So those are things to watch because those give you early signs and you can then twist and spin some of that data if you look at sort of like order levels against inventory that give you even more an extreme swing when those things start to move. So those are sort of some of the things that I tend to watch in in that respect, that kind of big global manufacturing inventory cycle stuff. Um, Employment tends to be very lagging. Okay, it tends to be a very lagging indicator, but it becomes important because it's a political ball, right? It is the objective. Um, it's one of the things that worries me, this sort of new Uber employment mandate of the Fed, which is verging on social policy, not on bloody macro policy or or monetary policy, which is another reason why I really don't feel ha- comfortable owning, you know, fixed income really anywhere. I know this is we've seen quite a big move, so maybe you can tactically kind of begin to nibble. But structurally I don't feel comfortable. If they're really going to deliver on this, this is very bad news. And then you you go back to if you're talking about markets, it tends to flip around as to which is leading and which is lagging. Um, you know, FX actually in March of last year was the leading indicator. So the Aussie bounced off the lows before anything else began to rebound. So that was quite a leading indicator. Equities tend to be quite a lagging indicator. And I've noticed it's a gut, but even more lagging than usual. And I think the reason is, is there's so much bloody money in the system now that they kind of sit there going, no, 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 until someone comes and gone, hits them once, hits them twice, hits them a third time, and then they go, oh, shit, right? I mean, you saw that with the pandemic. It was, I'm sure you had the same thing as me. I mean, I had Lou Roll and canned food a month before anyone else around here did. We, can, we had because we had tanks being ordered. Like yeah. In I mean, February had, that got stopped at the border from the right. Canadian government because they wouldn't, they needed it for emergency purposes. Right. True story. We were ready. Right. Yeah. I mean, we, were ready. we knew it because we had friends in, in Asia and they, mm-hmm. and I was, I remember talking, what ran out? Lou roll. Well, it's not a gastric infection last time I looked. Right. But anyway, Lou roll fan out. So I was like, I better go and buy some Lou roll. Um, but the, um, but you know, equities didn't respond, right? Bonds started to move. FX started to move and equities just sat there. Commodities, right? Base metals were moving really fast. You could see the commodity space that there were some leading indicators there, but equities were just stubbornly moving. I I very, very clearly remember our CIO. I very clearly remember our CIO tweeting out like late January saying the S and P is a Teflon man. It's a Teflon market. Right. Doesn't matter what's happening in China; it keeps on going up. Right, exactly, and of course, it does until it doesn't. Right, mm-hmm. so I think you know, I don't think equities have been. You know, we've. It was pretty obvious that this inflation picture was going to pick up. It was pretty obvious that bonds were bloody awfully mispriced. It was pretty obvious that tech had seen PE multiplications and become what I refer to as kind of the ersatz bond. Right, the replacement for the bond mm-hmm. because it grows when nothing else is growing, which is what you used to when you used to buy bonds, but now you buy Apple or Tesla. Um, and so you were like, Jesus Christ, does the equity market realize how big a put it's written on on treasuries? 
You know, when those things start to go, this thing should do. But it didn't, right? It didn't. I mean, the curve started to go like this. And momentum just kept going uh, like this until one day the technical signals switched, price confirmed, and then you should be ready to slot it. And it goes back to this point. Don't preempt the price. Price action right. is singularly – look, You don't, Look, if you're a, running a, a trillion-dollar bond fund and there are guys like that, well, clearly you can't just go one day yours – Right, you have to position into that, right? And we've got clients like that, and that's why the the institutional stuff is really much more about share of mind. But the MI, the macro insider stuff, no one's slinging around that big positions. I can go right today here, this level, bang, sell it. Thank you, bye bye. Right. Yeah. Size so let's matters. talk a little bit. Let's talk about a little bit about uh, in, uh, a lot of the topics you covered, but inflation is the. Uh, what's top of mind today, right? And I, I remember you were talking about inflation like three, four years ago. And what was interesting again is that you had this kind of view of what inflation was gonna be like, but you traded around it, which is fantastic. So this has been a thing. Um, yeah. Where are we today and what are you seeing? Going so I, I might I might add one yeah, other go. thing there. You, you, you had a great tweet on March 1st regarding the ISM report. And the references in that report around labor and tightening. So I, I think that might be just right. lay right into that. So maybe elaborate on that a little more. Sure, you, absolutely. You, you were limited. You were limited in the characters you could use there. So <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> so I think that we're in very much a situation that is akin to the '60s. And I'll share another screen with you. Um, I can find it. So if you look at the 60s, and this is one that I've been using since Trump got elected. Right? Arnie, please share the screen. Yeah. Okay. So you've got CPI at the top and you've got government spending, right? So this was late 50s into the mid-60s, halcyon period of post-war of post-war uh, economics in the US. Inflation's averaging, I mean, not even 2%, 1.5%. And you can see it's an incredibly tight range, right? Kennedy gets assassinated. Johnson wins both houses on a sympathy vote, and he pushes through what Kennedy wanted to introduce. It's called Johnson's Great Society, but it really was Kennedy's Great Society. And you hit an economy which was running pretty much firing on all cylinders. It was doing incredibly well. And it was really unnecessary to do this big bump in spending. Expenditure. And what do you do is you knock inflation out of the range. Now, back then, you had a Fed that thought they could run it a little hot uh, in exactly the same way that you did now. And what you started to do is you push you push inflation from, you know, one and a half really here where they start the program up to just shy of four. Okay. And then the Fed comes in and they hit it and they hit it quite hard. And this to me, you know, this is the, the comparison here is, is what uh, Trump did, you know, utterly unnecessary pro-cyclical stimulus in an economy that didn't need it. Right. And you do that initial kicker to inflation. Then this is 2018. The Fed comes and hits it. Same thing happened back then. The equity market dropped 20 percent here. 
Um, actually, housing stumbled. There were some idiosyncratic things around SNLs at the time, but the Fed backs off. Okay. Now, so just to, just to recap, yeah. you mean 2018 when Powell started tightening? Correct. Is akin, the... akin to sort of 1966 here. Yeah. So inflation yeah. drops. Obviously, COVID has complicated it yet again. But what are we doing? We're basically going into ongoing spending, easing into ongoing fiscal spending. And we're easing with inflation structurally higher than when it was, say, in, in, in the GFC, right? I mean, I'm looking at wage models. I'm just looking at them today. Average hourly earnings dropped to 1.5%. Now, average hourly earnings are screwed up because you've lost a lot of people out of the workforce with low wages. But when I look at my models, I don't see any of the wage models dropping back to 1.5%. They're all beginning to base. They've come off the highs around 35 to sort of 3.8 for average earnings, but they're basing around three. And some of them are showing signs of picking up again. So we're easing into these cyclically higher rates. And this is what we are. Now, you don't have to go here. This is the 70s. Right. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I know people are, oh, yeah, you know, but the point is, is we could just be in the late 60s where we go from one and a half to four to six. Now, for a treasury investor in this period here, guys, you lost one third of your money in real terms in five bloody years. This is financial repression. We haven't even got to the 70s. Right. We still have a pegged currency. We still have pegged oil prices. We still have pegged shipping prices. So this is yeah, you can do it. In six years, you have the, the purchasing power. Yeah. You're purchasing the average American. Yeah. Yeah. Just gets, you know, it's certainly in fixed income terms gets eviscerated. Now, fast forward to today. And I've tweeted out some of these and they're not leading indicators. They're, they're not models. They're just leading indicators. And you read some of the, the cost pressure stuff that you're getting um, on the corporate side. And there's, I'm just writing a presentation now and going through it for, for clients as to where all these pressures are. And look, there's some clearly, and Powell's talked about, there's base effects, right? There's base effects. Um, I'll do stop sharing now. Um, so there's base effects that we're seeing um, coming through just oil prices, right? But what's interesting is this that is that the transitory all... inflation that he's talking about, right? Be careful, <laughs> right? Because it's the rate of change, right? This is what people forget, right? If oil is at five and it goes to 10, it's bloody cheap, but that's a 100% increase. And that's what influences inflation because it's a rate of change. So um, the fact now that oil is pushing up again means that what naturally would have happened in terms of a peaking in Q3 is actually now extending into 2022, okay? So that's one thing. There's the natural cyclical recovery in the economy tends to lead inflation, okay? Higher inflation moves higher as you move up capacity utilization. And we are, if you look, read at some of these manufacturing surveys, we are like, here in capacity. We are here. Now, maybe that'll some some of that will get resolved in August and September, but you won't even see the price pressure push through until the end of the year. Then you've got uh, you know, huge bottlenecks in the system. I mean, I've tweeted out talking about, 
you know, PPI pressures that could be eight, nine percent year over year, like the like of which we haven't seen until yeah, since uh, 2008. Right. And by the way, the largest spread ever recorded, you can get the data for between PPI and CPI was like 4.3 in 08. So you hit nine, even allowing for the largest spread ever, you could have CPI above four. Right. And it's don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm I'm, uh, you know. I think a lot more people are in the inflation camp. I just don't think they're in the magnitude of inflation camp, right? So remember the old days, pre-central banks, manipulation of post-08? Then bond yields were supposed to be equivalent to nominal GDP, right? So what happens if we get 6.5% real, 6.5% real, and 4, 4.5% CPI? I mean, 10, 11% nominal GDP. Do you really unwind a treasury at one and a half? Yeah. Now, at some point, the system's going to roll over again and we're going to break, right? Um, but until we do, that's the game. And so, say more about what are, they, what, are the, what are the implications for gold in that circumstance? Uh, I, look, I've said gold is as expensive as it gets in inflation adjusted terms. Ever, ever. I can show you the, I'll show you the chart. Um, and I have said on, I said on the macro insider side that I'm, I'm out of my gold apart from a physical core holding, right? The, the end of the world trade. Although I do kind of worry that if, if it's the end of the world, there's only two metals you really want. That's lead and brass. But I have that same argument today. I'm yeah. Like, even, you got your gold bars? <laughs> In my yeah. scenario, gold bars mean nothing. Yeah, exactly. seize water and bullets. That's yeah, what exactly. Really and, you know, and yeah, it, it's. Uh, but if you look at gold in inflation-adjusted terms, you will see that it's as expensive as it ever gets. Uh, share screen. Did it share? Oh, hold on. Yeah, it's coming. Okay. Yeah. Or Ani fell asleep. I'm not sure. Pedal faster. Come on. <laughs> um, so I've been looking at more cyclical stuff, frankly. Um, and I think that you- Ani's saying that you haven't pressed the share button yet. Maybe. Oh, I think I have. It's, I've got a spinning wheel, which means oh. it's not working. Ah, not responding. Here we go. Hopefully I won't lose you guys. Yeah, um, don't crash. Don't crash on us. I'm trying not to. Just come back. We, we can. It just means you can imagine. Back, we can imagine. So is, is it a line that shows that gold is it's a, expensive, it's a more expensive than ever? Is it a very line that goes back to the <laughs> it's a golden line? Yeah. It's, All right. I can use yeah. my imagination. So anyway, the yeah. um, so I think the problem with you know all of these things it's it's what comes next. When's the next stage of the so you get this burst in inflation, you get this burst. I think it's much stronger than people think. Um, I think the employment rebound is much stronger. It's beginning to look much stronger than I thought, certainly. Um, the wage pressure is is much more embedded than people realize. I think this sets 
bond markets up for, um, I mean, right here, right now, maybe we get a bit of a pause. It's only because you're getting some of the sell-off in the equity market. And that, you know, there's that natural feedback loop. But I just think fixed income is still grossly mispriced. Uh, the problem is going to be for the dilemma this sets up for central banks because their natural inclination, and I've been saying to a lot of clients that the Fed kind of wants their cake and eat it. They they want, and they've talked to policymakers and obviously with Yellen in, in, in the White House um, or in the administration, uh, you've got this, this sort of symbiotic, uh, relationship they've got now to sort of underpin what Treasury is doing. And Treasury's planning, I mean, the numbers are insane, insane, guys. Um, and it's been very clear from a policy perspective that that was going to come through. Um, but so they've been saying, oh, we'll underpin this, don't worry, we'll we'll help you, we'll do all these things. Well, what do they do if these numbers just become so great? I think they've got one of two options. The first one is they push back against government, okay, and they basically tighten on government. Um, okay, well... So if dollar you, up? Dollar up, bond yields up, front end of the curve crushed. Um, but it would annihilate the US equity market, I think, right? I'm, I'm, I just... The odds of you getting a huge, broad VAR shock, as we call it, value at risk shock. In other words, all risk models get stressed by that move, I think is so great because you'd be talking Apple back at 1995, right? You know, exactly where it was pre-pandemic. Um, I think that is a real risk. So you'd crush the housing market. I mean, the housing market would be annihilated, Right? I you're mean, talking about a raise in short-term interest rates, right? I'm sure about you know true tightening, but you talk a blowout in you're talking a blowout in treasury yields. You know, treasury yields go up to two, two and a half. Right? I don't think the economy can take that. Okay, yeah. I do not believe. I think all these equity guys who stood up there and say, "Oh, we can go back to two and a half, three percent," just don't realize the degree you. in which we've had PE multiplication since. COVID, right? Apple PE went from 25 to 45 at the high. It's come down because their numbers were good. But look at Tesla's PE, right? It just went parabolic. And so that's one option for the Fed, right? They do what they typically do, okay? They're independent. Yeah, they're independent. And the bond market has to <laughs> as, is beginning to realize that that is a risk, right? I mean, we saw it in 2013, Oh, no, we won't tighten. Oh, no, we won't tighten. Oh, yeah, we actually need to taper. Taper. What? You told us you weren't going to taper. Bloody hell. Right. Yours. Okay. So that's that's risk number one, and that's option number one, right? And I don't know whether that's a valuable one because I just don't think that we could clear the level of debt that's going to be issued, and the numbers are ginormous, right? We are running debt levels. A banana republic wouldn't be allowed to run. Okay, Um, and we will run be running those numbers for the years to come. So you just can't clear the market at a natural clearing rate, which brings us to option number two. And option number two is basically that the Fed gets in bed with government and truly does some sort of yield curve control stroke, essentially MMT, and that they artificially suppress bond yields in order to support asset prices and clear the debt. Operation Twist is already a hint. 
Yeah, but it's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. One of my one of my hedge fund clients said to me that they're by their calculations, the Fed needs to increase QE to three hundred billion a month. Right? Because I think Morgan Stanley did some work at the end of last year. We're what are talking we now, 60? Uh, no, you're 80 on treasuries and, and uh, 40 20 on, on the mortgage. Yeah, 40 and, on the mortgage. Yeah, and 40 on, on the mortgage and the corpse, yeah. Right. Jesus. So you'd really have to step it up and, and because the numbers are just startling, guys. I mean, Morgan Stanley did some baseline work, and this is before Biden, the Biden election, and their number was a deficit between – from 2021 to 2025 inclusive, so those five years of uh, 16 trillion, basically, right? Add in the two that we've just spent, which aren't funded, add in possibly another one in the infrastructure thing that might not be funded. A lot of it's going to get funded and people don't realize there's going to be some bloody enormous tax increases going to come through. You are talking, let's say the ease of calculations, 20 trillion, okay? Over five years, so for a year. Total private sector savings in aggregate, in totality in the U.S. economy annually is 1.8, right? So even if you drained out every red cent, you crowded out, to use that old economic expression, every red cent of savings from the private sector in the U.S., which would be bad, right? If we couldn't put any money in the equity market and it went all into the treasury market, that would be a bit bad. If we couldn't put into commercial real estate, if we couldn't do it into banks, right, it would be bad, but let's assume that we can do that, okay? Where's that 2.2 going to come from? Well, the Fed's got to, at some point, say, we're not going to be independent anymore. Correct. We are now a player of Absolutely. But you've They've been but hinting at this. a pleasant thing for them to do, right? This is a viscerally, you're asking them to essentially hand over their independence and abandon their current metrics. And clearly, you can see from the comments of people like Bostic and even from Powell, that this is not something that they want to do lightly. So, and it's just it's exactly what happened in the 60s. In the 60s, Bill Martin, who was the Fed president at the time, okay, was looking at all this spending in a pegged exchange rate mechanism and was looking at the gold leaving the US and the current account deficits building and it was putting pressure in the system. And he was made with the choice. He could accommodate government spending, or he could push back, raise interest rates, stabilize the system. And he came to the conclusion in a famous commentary, he said, the Fed is independent within government, but it is not independent of government. And in other words, if it is the objective of government <laughs> to run these numbers, right, to, ru- to make these societal changes, Right to reduce minority unemployment, to redress income imbalances, to address everything that led to you know the horror of Black Lives Matter. If government's decided to do that, is not my job to push against that. Up against the will of the people, so they have the a model. will of the people. So, but the point is, is we aren't at that point yet. The Fed kind of, as I said, likes wants to have their cake and eat it. Thinks that they can kind of run both. That they can let this thing run hot and then taper or raise rates and they're delusional because they'll bring there's too much leverage in the system for them to do that so i think we have to see that reset you've got to keep punching them until one day they come in and say okay your name's the fed 10-year yields are one percent or one and a half percent and then 
that point, it's very clear what you do. You kibosh the dollar because in the same way that if you run a pegged exchange rate, right, there used to be this thing called the Holy Trinity when you ran a pegged exchange rate. And it was if you've three metrics, money supply, um, current account, and exchange rate, solve for two because you can't solve for three. Okay, so if you want to peg your currency, okay, you can peg your currency and you control your, your, your capital account, but you can't uh, solve for the money supply, right? And the money supply you are basically, or you can, sorry, you set your interest, not the current account, you set your interest rates. So you can't solve for everything, right? And your interest rates are given to you. So now if you think about it from an exchange, from where the Fed is now, if they want to peg bond yields and support equities, Right? And they want to peg bond yields at an uneconomic, non-market clearing rate because we can't afford to clear because you'll crush the spending and you'll crush the equity market. Then what you have to do is you have to underpin that. And what has to give is the currency. And that's so, you go back to your gold <laughs> trade. Sidestepping a little bit this whole normative versus positive analysis, right? What you think should be done versus what is likely going to happen. It seems like both Europe and the U.S. are setting the stage for something along those lines. Christine Lagarde is now at the helm of the ACB. She's not a central banker. She's a policymaker. She's of that world. And uh, the appointment of Yellen to the Treasury Correct. seems to, to bringing some form of alignment uh, with, with the Fed as well. So given that uh, uh, scenario, isn't it likely that we're going to see this realignment of those two, uh, let's say the convergence of those two branches into one. Yeah. And and I think people forget, I mean, independent central banks are not a very, you know, they're relatively new invention, right? I mean, you know, treasury and the bank of England, when I was a little boy in the sixties were this one in the same thing. Right. Um, so yes, I think this is exactly that. And it's, you know, you go back and look at these cycles and, uh, and this is another thing that I'm a big student. I don't believe anything is ever different. You know, I think we have cycles. I, you know, I, I think things like the fourth turning, you know, the Kondratiev wave and all this sort of things are functions of that. And I think, you know, we're at one of those periods where if it weren't for fiat currencies and the ability of government to essentially print money, uh, we'd be in a pretty shitty place, right? I mean, you know, we'd be in what I call the heads on sticks phase, right? Where, you know, you're Louis the 15th and, and the sans culotte are banging down the door of the Bastille, right? And are just about to storm Versailles, you know, and put you and your missus head on a stick, right? I mean, I really think we're at a societal turning point that those things are necessary. And we've just voted in a government in the United States with that visceral belief to deliver. And I think that, eventually the central bank is going to be dragged down that route. I don't think it's an easy thing for them to do. I think it's a painful thing for them to acknowledge. That's why we have to inflict some pain. And I kind of think this is the beginning of that pain. What yeah, let's talk about that. So we saw uh, there's been a wobble in the markets, both bond and equity markets, yeah. because everybody's seeing inflation, but the Fed's like, look, this is transitory inflation. That yeah. seems hawkish to me, right? And so it, it reminds me of 2015 or reminds me of 2018. Is that what we're, until they give in completely, are we in for 
that jagged type of scenario as that tug of war begins between the Fed and the government? Is that what you're seeing? Well, and I mean, so between market. the Fed and the markets, but yes, I think I think that's the case, right? I mean, I uh, you know, I think as I said, I think this is a Fed that still wants to believe that we live in a normal world, right? A normal world where they can ultimately shrink the balance sheet and raise rates. And I think they're truly delusional because, you know, they've pumped up asset prices to a point where you can't do this. I mean, I remember writing a piece, you know, when they started talking about tapering back in 2013 and said, can the Fed successfully shrink the balance sheet? And the answer was, no bloody way. No bloody way, because the feedback loop between financial assets and the real economy is one in the same these days. I, I've just gone out of, like, I, I've said so often, and Richard can attest to this, that Powell will never make that mistake again in his career, that he will never let 2018 happen well, again. I wonder, I wonder if he'll it. just give up. Right. That tug of war will be last week, and then he's going to give up on it. Well, Here's, hey, this is more like me hoping, by the way. Yeah, no, and I and I I, I do understand that, but I, um, you know, one of the things that I've heard from policy contacts is they're quite, and even Bloomberg's written about this. They're they're central bank guys. They seem to be quite happy about allowing the curve to steepen, right? So, and I think that comes about because of a visceral, my understanding, you know, talking as I said, talking to mates who talk to these guys still. Uh, is um, that they've been deeply, deeply worried about uh, bubblicious stocks, right? So the idea, let it kind of curve, take some of the strain, and it'll be all, everything will be fine, and it'll all settle down. Well, maybe we can, but it is going to be like you know threading the the eye of the needle. It's bloody hard to do it to just have Apple, Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Nvidia you know, all these things drop and, and everything else kind of rally and, and not create some sort of like VAR shock across portfolios so that everything drops. It's good for banks though, right? It's good for the Wall Street guys. And the fact of the matter is the the growth tech stocks, they are much more sensitive to the 30-year than to the 10 or much less so to the shorter term uh, rate. So some of this could be sort of assuaged by a rotation of equities. Obviously, yeah, it's, it's, it's painful hard. in the market cap weighted world that we're in with the S&P. They've occupied such a large part that if they fall tremendously or, or, or even in any meaningful way, that brings the whole market down, easy, even as the other uh, uh, yes. portions of the market are catching up. I'm not sure right. if I'm right, but I listened to Bloomberg this morning driving my daughter to school, and um, they were saying that uh, I think it was Amazon and Apple are equivalent, and I might be wrong on that, but they're basically equivalent to banks and industrials. So just the, and so this is the problem, right? I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, we've been f fans of that cyclical rotation trade, um, but it's kind of hard to do it in a with with these relative weightings right with these relative weightings and so i'm and i don't think we've seen even a capitulation in some of these tech names yet right i mean you can just look at it i mean yeah maybe in the, you know i was looking at like the 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 um the vwap you know the average price that stocks that something had for been bought over a period right for arc right so arc k off the lows right of march the vwap comes in at i think it was like 11760 right 
So that means that this morning, not sure exactly where it is now, but this morning we were half the stock purchased or half the stock traded uh, since the lows of March was underwater. Right. So 50% of the people who've been buying over the last year. We're losing, losing money. money right now. Right. We're losing money. And the thing was, is you haven't seen a capitulation. If you look at the flows, you just haven't seen a capitulation. If you look at uh, vols, you know, look at the VIX, look at positions in VXX, right? Shares outstanding in that. There's been no capitulation yet. So this is, I still think this is a gift that keeps giving. And this is nowhere close. The Fed can't capitulate with the NASDAQ down 10 bloody percent. They don't give a shit about where Tesla is, right? Tesla could go to zero, right? Zero, right? But right. You, so Tesla needs to go to a thousand before they they do something about it. Well, I mean, well, no, it's got to go to yeah. I mean, it's just got to you know a hundred. No, not yeah. a thousand. Sorry, you know, yeah, yeah hundred. But no, even then, it doesn't matter. I remember looking two thousand, right? When the Nasdaq went, the S and P didn't go. Right, the Nasdaq went in March. The money rotated into the Nasdaq, into the S and P and the Dow, and then the S and P stayed up until september and then dow which was bigger and a more important indicator back those in those days than, than now and it wouldn't be quite the same right but the dow didn't go until may of 21 and only then did the u.s show signs of going into a recession because the nasdaq was just a bubble right it's just like tesla tesla is a bubble right i mean the price action we'd be writing with people look this is a classic bubble okay um so it has to start impacting. And only when the, when the Dow went and you started to see real problems in the economy did the Fed ease. I mean, the Fed hiked with the Nasdaq down 40%. Right? Now, so I'm not quite saying it would be exactly the same this time. But the point is they don't care about individual stocks. right? What they're looking at is the big macro picture. I do think they could be panicked if we saw housing activity collapse because – Mortgage rates have just become unaffordable. And, you know, we were writing about this um, recently. I mean, the average FICO score, and let me get this right, so I'll pull up the screen. The average FICO score in Q3 for a home purchase was the highest in 20 years because um, it's all rich people who bought this stuff. And... The medium, where is it? Uh, sorry, I'm just trying to find it so I don't make a mistake. The, I, mean, I think it was seven six hundred and eighty six, right? Was the median uh, FICO score? I mean, those numbers are off the charts. People just can't afford it. Yeah, so. Um, so 786 is the highest level in 20 years with the medium FICO score for a mortgage um, with only 10% of mortgages extended under 683. And by the way, 10%, the average FICO score for a millennial is 680. So who's buying all these bloody houses? It's wealthy people. It's the guy moving from New York City to Greenwich when his junior tries to move to Stamford Good friggin' luck, mm -hmm. right? It's because the house price has gone up 10 or 20%. Mortgage rates just backed up. He doesn't have the income to support it anyway, and he can't even get the sodding credit. So 
that's when I think the Fed will start to get concerned. If you saw a precipitous drop in housing, just like you did in 1966, you get the equity market and the housing market down together. Then I think things could get a little interesting. But the point is, is we need more pay. Tesla dropping to 100. The plumbing of the system, I think, makes I mean, they, they, they're sort of maybe fighting the last war in the sense that the credits market froze, money markets, repo markets back in 08. And I think the recent scare in the repo market is is still very salient. Correct. Memory, so I wonder if you might kind of talk about that and how that plays into what the Fed's real possibilities uh, for, for next moves are. I mean, considering how scary the repo market got for some of the for people who are actually watching this, right? And and yeah. So I mean, look, this was this was a fundamental problem. I mean, that you know, you saw a lurch in, you saw this tightening of uh, as you started to see a lot of new issuance. You saw this problem that um, the banks were actually starting to get their balance sheets were starting to get crowded out by the sheer quantity of treasuries that they were taking on board the prime dealers. And remember, these are the biggest banks in the United States. And, and they can't not buy. No, you can't not buy. Correct. Right. You just. They're not allowed to. That's yeah. right. <laughs> well, you know, you, you just got to keep you got to keep you got to keep doing it. Right. Uh-uh. So, uh, this caused, you know, a real tightening of it was basically crowding out the balance sheet. And if they let it go to the extreme and this is why they had to come through and flush the system with cash again and try and stabilize things. But. Um, we just saw with the seven-year auction that, um, you know, they were left holding the bag again. Now they've relaxed some of the rules. You know, this this um, supplementary leverage ratio, right, the SLR, was, you know, enabled them to kind of, you know, carry more treasuries, not have to put capital against that. Um, and um, so things have, have helped out. But this is a fun, you know, look, this backup in bond yields, I think, will attract buying. I think the BOJ's move to cap JGB yields, uh, I think is important. Treasury started to wobble when the Japanese yield started to spike. Uh, so that may help. You'll get something. You'll get, I think, a, a, a stabilization in at kind of current levels. But if equities go straight back up again, right, then bonds are going to go again, right? And then you add the inflation growth recovery story. Bonds are fundamentally unstable. So maybe we get this short bout of, you know, a month, couple of months even, where things sort of tread water and we're in this little kind of, you know, phony war where bonds dip up a bit and equities wobble a bit, okay? But the the, the, the amount of issuance that's coming down the pipeline, I'm afraid, is just going to necessitate. The, the, the dealers, unless they totally suspend and go back to pre- Dodd-Frank kind of rules, right? It used to be that if you're a treasury prime dealer, you could net your position so you could take your longs and you could short and you could net them down to zero and treasuries were zero risk weighted. So you could have the biggest damn book that you wanted to have. And then they started to introduce all this stuff. And a friend of mine was, was COO of Citibank's global fixed income business. And he was going into the Fed and pleading with them, don't damn well do this, okay? Don't do this because if you start to put that I have to hold these things on my book, I have a return on equity metric, okay? Because I have to put up equity against these things and capital against these things. 
I have a return on equity metric that means me as the second largest primary market maker for treasuries in the world ain't going to be carrying any inventory and won't want to take this so stuff down. So it's all on the Fed right now since then. So I think it's a lot, unless, and as I said, you could roll back Dodd-Frank. Mm, politically, it's going to be quite a smelly one to do, right? So, especially I'm, under a democratic administration, correct? I, especially I, I under a democratic administration, right? So, I truly think that this is up to the Fed. We just have to force the Fed to the point that they capitulate. And as I said, it will not be a painless process because what you are asking them to do is viscerally repugnant to them. What does that capitulation look like? I'm, I, I'm, tr I'm trying to kind of set the stage here of, of, so of, of what the mechanics... Would be, no, I think it's a broad... I think it's a combination of a broad risk-off VAR type event in markets where everything is kind of selling off. Let's step back a second. Yeah. What is the Fed doing? How? What are the actions that are indicating the Fed's capitulation? What, so is I think it raising the Fed fund rates? So, so you pressurize them by getting weakness in the economy from the backup in rates. Let's say housing goes, right? Let's use that 66 analogy. Housing goes, markets are under pressure, dollars pushing higher, all of the things that they don't want to happen, that they structurally believe, you know, are still necessary. That is, you're tightening financial conditions on them, basically, mm -hmm. right? And... They don't want that to happen, clearly. Um, and you push them to the point. And then I suspect what they do is they will hide. And, and what you'd really like is treasuries under pressure at the same time. So you create that. You know, and that's where, to go back to our first question about risk parity, right? I mean, it's not that I think it's a bad strategy, but you're really stressing that whole 60-40 thesis, right? You've got nowhere to hide kind of thing. No, that, that conversation wasn't live, so I want to make sure what you oh, mean sorry. by risk parity is 60-40 bond equity, not the actual risk parity, which includes commodities, bonds, right. tips, and the like. Right. So that kind Go of balance, the balance portfolio, <laughs> let's call it a balance portfolio. Not the the lever balance portfolio. Yeah. You know, you d it's very difficult to find a hedge, right? Mm -hmm. And let's be honest, even in that environment, commodities are probably going down too because you're having to degross your books. You're having to reduce your risk on your portfolio, sure. right? And you're, you, you know, if if gold is up, you're like, thank you very much. As we no, saw- there's a liquidity crunch, everything goes down. Everything goes down. So I think you need that kind of liquidity crunch um, and you need the Fed to come in and step up their purchases. I just don't think, I think in a- On the longer end, right? It has to happen on the longer end in order to actually uh, flatten the yield curve. Because yeah, I think it probably does happen on the longer end. I think it's it has yield curve control all down the curve because if you, yeah. I'm I'm actually a little concerned that if if you're say causing this stress just like now where bond yields and bonds are not backing off even though equity is weak because of the data, so fast forward to let's say September and one of the things that I've been listening to is companies talking about you know we just can't find people. Right? We want to bring people back to work, but we can't find them because this unemployment's just got extended to July, right? So people are just sitting there going, eh, you know, I'm, I'm not taking a nice old paycheck. Right, I'm not going to take 15 bucks an hour. You know, I'm going to sit and play, you know, my, with my Xbox, you know, and I'm going to wait till August and it runs out. And then, uh, then companies will be offering me 20 bucks an hour. What happens in August if you get a million non-farm payroll number? 
right? I mean, some blowout bloody number with average hourly earnings jumping and at the same time you're printing the highs on inflation, right? And good news is bad news. We'll peg 10 years, right, or 30s. I mean, I don't need to go that far, but we'll peg, you know, we'll come out and buy a cr- shed load of 10 years. Well, in that situation, all that's going to happen is the belly of the curve, five years, you know, to 2023, 2024 euro dollars is just going to go, right? So you'll just get a bare flattener as the curve, the Fed comes in and pushes this bit down, but this bit will just go boom like that. So I, I think they're going to have to think very hard how they do this. And I think they just have to increase QE and say, we're going to be buying down the whole curve. Hey, whatever but it takes type of narrative. Whatever it takes kind of situation. Yeah. Um, and as I said, then when that happens, the dollar just gets annihilated. That's it. So dollar so down, where's, emerging where's markets the, up. Where's the deflation that occurs? <laughs> What's the deflation? Is there ever an increase in productivity or anything? I mean, I hear this this sort of counter narrative on occasion, which makes my kind of, I hit shake my head. No, I mean, got- what, what we need is we need to get out of this, right? There's two options. Option number one, debt jubilee at some point, okay? Option number two is rapid nominal GDP growth, right, which destroys the value of the debt or erodes the value of the mm-hmm. debt, destroys the wrong word, erodes the value of the debt over time. And it can happen quickly. Like I said, you know, five years in the 60s, given where bond yields were and term risk premium was kind of where it is exactly now. I mean, ours was actually just recently negative, right? So the so – the, you know, what you earn from being taking the risk in 10 years as opposed to just rolling your money kind of in overnight or short dated. So um, in those in those six years, you, you know, from from 65 to 70, you eroded the value uh, of a treasury uh, by 30 percent, right? By a third. So is that what you mean by Jubilee? No, that Jubilee would be okay because that's Jubilee that's is literally restructuring, literally just, for, forgiving, forgiving student loans. Let's forgiving all, student loans. Let's all forget. Let's, that's the beginning. Yeah. Is, so okay. So, in what you're describing is inflation that brings debt down. Well, rapid and normal GDP. So you peg bond yields at two, and you're right. growing okay, at sure. six. Right. So real you, in real terms, you're you're seeing correct in real terms. In, you know, you're growing at six and eight, and you can do that quickly. So I'm not convinced that we're going to go back into a deflationary environment. I think you can have bouts of, you know, where prices will dip a little bit. But as I said, if you compare this to 2008, 2009, we are starting this, and this is, we're spending much more money than we spent in 2008, 2009, and we're running much more extreme monetary policy than we were in 2008, 2009. We're doing it from higher inflation with you know headline inflation and even core inflation we're doing higher wage growth right and it looks like that chart that i showed you in the 60s where you kind of do this oscillation but every single new low is higher than the prior low yep yeah. higher highs lower lows yeah. So the debt jubilee uh, uh, alternative doesn't really seem feasible because of what it does to the system, right? For insurance company, for the banks, it doesn't seem like it's anywhere near part of the conversation. So you're you're left with either growth or inflation to erode away the 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 real value well, of it's a combination. Of That's why I keep saying nominal, right? It's that combination of real growth and inflation. And let's I don't know what the number is. Let's say it's six, 
right? I mean, in an ideal world, you'd have, you know, 4% real growth, 3%, uh, 2% inflation. But bugger it, if you can't generate the, the 4% real growth, you'll take 2% real growth and 4% inflation. This is what I'm trying to get at, though. Uh, Drucker Miller uh, and some other people have been talking about how we're uh, vastly been underestimating productivity. And, and, and we're overdue for a rethink about how we're measuring economic growth. And I think that's totally do you think, fair. Do you, do you think, think this totally alternative, the scenario that you're describing of uh, growth in, in, in nominal GDP would necessarily have to, for, to some degree, uh, pass through this uh, reimagination of how we measure uh, economic activity? I mean, look, maybe. I mean, maybe you do it like that. I mean, I, do, I don't know whether it really... It really matters. I mean, if you go into a, this is where you go back to this kind of, you know, real versus nominal stuff. And I, I'm a bit of a cynic. I know central banks love to talk about real. I mean, last time I looked in my wallet, I didn't go, oh, I've got 20 bucks, but it's really only $19.75, right? I mean, you know, it was worth 20 bucks two months ago, and now it's worth, you know, this. Yeah, people don't think like that and markets aren't necessarily the peruvian the south american here will have will have an issue with that statement but no, yeah I'm you you thinking. lucky you lucky developed nation people well have lucky never so, been able lucky, to conceptualize lucky, lucky so far is lucky so thing. far right yeah, and, and um, well, this is the this is the hidden opportunity for uh, central banks to capitalize on correct right? that that's that's the that's the 60s is that people don't view they don't understand real and they don't view real. So it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful way to inflate to away. The frog. Correct. Mm -hmm. Nice and slow. No one really notices it. Well, that's, yeah. That's, uh, that but was then the they, 70s. But they notice it. it. Was, it was, well, the 70s was a little faster. I think that frog would have jumped a couple of times. The 70s was, yeah, but yeah. Still, I mean, yes, it was a big drop in purchasing power for sure. Right. And remember, but it wasn't like 7,000% like what I've experienced well, in Peru and you've experienced it. It wasn't Zimbabwe. It wasn't in Weimar Republic, sure. But it right. was it, it was meaningfully higher than yeah. anything we experienced in the last four decades. So it does change the dynamics and people might start world. looking it's at their wallets. It's a fine type well, of inflation. No, but, it has they, a whiff of sophistication. No, but they, they, <laughs> it, it absolutely chokes off spending. I mean, as a, yeah. as a kid who for grew sure. up in that era... But we're like, not we, there. Remember, this is also part. I this is part of the of the wealth transfer we have to go through, right? So that's an interesting point, actually. You know, I I think you know I remember one of my colleagues' mother. You know, his father died quite young, and his father had worked for a big. He was very senior for a big UK company, and they had the pension. And mummy went shopping at Harrods. And, you know, it was fine, right? It was in those old days of the corporation really used to take care of you, right? And he was a senior exec. He died. She gets a big death benefit. She gets a, you know, full-on nice pension. They used to go shopping at Harrods. He said, you know, that was in the, in the 60s. And then by the 70s, he was subsidizing his mother's income. Yeah, because the value of inflation had just eroded that, and but that was the way. That's the way it needs to happen, right? We need yeah. millennials to be able to buy million dollar homes, right? Because we all own million dollar homes. Who the hell is going to buy them off us, right? We don't want them to fall to half a million dollar homes because we'll be feeling pretty pissed off, right? Retirement so plan involves the sale of that home, right? Right. But, the, but you need the wealth to transfer. And the way you do that is run rapid nominal GDP, push wages higher, okay? And 
it's not going to be easy to do, but maybe we can do that. Right. Look, I, you haven't heard me say this, Julian, but I've said this before. So I, I, born and raised in Peru, the reason we came to Canada was because inflation went up 7,000% in six months. My grandfather retired, accountant his whole life. He was offered to, to be given a million dollars in U.S. dollars, a million dollars in Peruvian soles. He took the million dollars, equivalent U.S. dollars in Peruvian soles, within six months, which is massive back then, right, right, you can right. imagine. Um, that went to zero for him in Peruvian solas. My next door neighbor at the same time was being evicted from his from his house because he couldn't afford his mortgage payments. Happened to have a few dollar bills, U.S. dollar bills under his mattress. When the inflation happened, he paid off his mortgage with a couple hundred dollar bills. Right. So he got to keep his house and my father, my grandfather got to lose it all. That's right. an extreme example of what you're talking about. So this idea, what we're dealing with right now is a massive wealth um, uh, gap right. that, that needs to be fixed in one way or another. And this is, you know, there's pain in all of this, but this seems to be a clear agenda from the current population. Oh, totally. I mean, visceral. I mean, you, yeah. you talk, I, I talk to a lot of friends who are in those, I said in the policy space and, and it was always when I was at medical advisors, so kind of extreme view mix internally between the Democrats and the Republicans in the firm. And actually it was great because it gave us both sides kind of view and they had contacts in both sides of the administration. But when you talk to the sort of Democrats, I mean, they will tell you this is an administration that that is almost it's almost like a religious zeal to fix some of these uh, discrepancies. And you, it's hard to argue that now is the right time to try and do it. I mean, it's not from a debt perspective all right it's not necessarily from an economic perspective from a social perspective god almighty we need to deal with this thing mm -hmm. yeah julian i kind of want to shift gears just a touch uh to go to something that i've read uh in your work time and time again which is the u.s dollar cycle and i kind of wanted to get your thoughts on given the the scenario that you just described and the, the, the trees of possibilities uh, that you think might happen. What happens to the dollar here? And could this time be different, given that we now have a, a, a emerging China, which still doesn't have enough of a bond market depth to have and, and all the, the capital controls that they have there. But you have China, you have the, the European uh, uh, poll, you have a rise in protectionism, and you have the bits in the sky, the crypto world now as an alternative. So how does that uh, uh, a multifaceted problem uh, adjust to your framework for the U.S. dollar. So I, I think the first thing to say is um, I keep drawing the analogy to the late '60s, and you talked obviously you, you were talking about the '70s as well. So I, in the late '60s, as I said, we had a peg exchange rate, right? Um, and so the process was elongated. I think these things. Firstly, I think things are happening much more rapidly, mm. and it's partly because we don't have the fixed exchange rate. Right. But we came out of Bretton Woods when the system collapsed, the pegged system collapsed in currencies and the dollar fell 50 percent against the Deutschmark and 50 percent against the yen. Why shouldn't the same thing happen again? Is my fundamental, you know, why it's it's insanity, right, is repeating the same thing, expecting a different outcome. We're doing we're heading in that same direction. We've got a central bank, which ultimately I feel we're not there yet. We have to go through the pain. There's some steps that have to click into place. But I think given the alternative, there is no alternative ultimately, that is going to have to underpin 
the US debt markets. And as it does that, the dollar is going to start falling. And I have models already which is suggesting a, an accelerative, rapid dollar decline. Right? So what 30, are the knock-on effects of that for other asset classes? Well, as I said, I mean, I think it's it's hugely inflationary. Right? It's hugely inflationary. You take the dollar and you overlay it over like G7 inflation. It's perfectly like an inverse relationship. It's hugely inflationary. It is uh, it's great for obviously your precious metals, but probably more silver than gold because ultimately a falling dollar is globally reflationary. It's stimulating. Emerging markets. Yeah. It's, you know, Raul says, and I, he's, it's a great expression. He goes, you know, look, if I know where the dollar's going, I just need to buy commodities and EM and go and sit on a beach for 10 years. Right? And basically he's right. Right? Can I push back here a little, Julian? Because yeah. I can't imagine the ECB, the BOJ, just watching the dollar tank, which makes the U.S. and their exports that much more competitive on the global landscape. I can't imagine the ECB and the BOJ and some of these other major central banks allowing their currencies to value so far against the dollar because of what it does for their, their economy. We, we have been since 08, 09 in this sort of zero-sum game of currency wars and competitive devaluations and all that fun stuff, which I'm sure you're, you're, you, you know. Right. Well, so, so. so here's the, here's the thing. Uh, yes, but dynamics change a little bit. So the first thing is how are they going to stop it happening? Okay. So if they want to stop it happening, they have to run Parry pursue their QE with the feds QE. Okay. How are they going to do that? Because if you look at the dollar against the relative balance sheets, it's a pretty decent indicator. How are they going to do that? They can buy the dollar. Uh, you're going to start. You're going to start. Really, you, you, the ECB is going to come in and start selling euros and buying dollars. Well, unilaterally, that's going to be politically pretty friggin' explosive in the US, right? Where the US will be saying, at least initially in the decline. This is just a correction because our currency was way overvalued for a long time. So don't you're a manipulator, right? I mean, that's there's all sorts of horrible things there. So I don't think they can buy the dollar. I don't think they've got the assets that they can generate domestically, which will allow them to keep up with the Fed. The, the European governments are not going to spend 15 to 20, not going to run 15 to 20 percent of GDP deficits like the U.S. Treasury is. Yeah, there's too right? many. There's too many constituents that have something to say about that, right? Right. So I just, I, I don't see that. I don't. Not see if that. the alternative is driving them into a recession. No, so hold, if- on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Think, think. There's two other things that come into play. The first thing is Germany and Northern Europe is highly, highly correlated to what emerging markets in Asia does, mm-hmm. right? And a weak dollar will start to help. You know, if if all of a sudden, you know, Brazil is functioning well again and, you know, don't count on it. The, I know I get it. And the Saudis are functioning well again. There's no okay. there, dude. Of course they are. If commodities go up. Emerging markets are making money. We're all right. gold. So, so they get that. And the other thing is, is that ultimately when push comes to shove, the ECB is a more inflation sensitive bank than the Fed is. Right. They don't have the debts. It's certainly in the country. Because of the Bundesbank, you mean? Yeah, because of the Bundesbank. So, and the Dutch and, you know, these other central banks, right? So there is a point 
at which higher inflation in, and you can look at the dollar actually against European inflation and actually it's pretty decent indicator there because oil prices will be going up and not all of it will be offset in currency terms, okay? And steel prices will be going up and all these things, just like now. And it's quite possible that the ECB will allow it to take some of the strain. But where the dollar, I'm not saying it nasty collapsed, you know, the dollar, the euro goes to 160, okay? But what will happen is, and what hasn't happened up until now, is the area of the currency market that hasn't seen any dollar appreciate uh, dollar weakness is EM. Yep. Right. So EM has to see it, um, and for that to happen, you've got to peg US yields. You get that. You get the fiscal spending that comes through, which actually is is true concrete demand for some of the commodities that you that you produce in emerging markets and that will slowly percolate look you brazil was going to go in what 2011 2012 was going to be the new emerged economy right a beer in you know brazil cost you like 20 bucks because dollar brazil was at 150 um and Everyone was like, oh, my God, it's great. And they forgot one bloody thing. If the dollar turns on you, you're screwed. And the only thing that's really changed for Brazil is the dollar's mood. If the dollar ultimately, look, I know they not the world's not, you know, it's not exactly the world's best president there at the moment. You've got some structural issues now. It's not as easy as it was back then. But just think that the, the, the Ferrari, which people were trying to pile into Brazil, at the cycle high of the Brazilian economy in like 2011, 2012, right? The one big variable that switched was the dollar. In terms of trade, the terms of trade worsened so much because uh, soy and iron ore, which are our main exports, uh, worsened a bit. We always have a lot of governance issues in Brazil. And granted, I do have a little bit of negative home country bias. So we have a saying in Brazil that Brazil is always the country of the future. But the future never converges, so it just stays in the future and <laughs> it moves just, away, and, and it never quantum, materializes. Yeah. So, granted, a, yeah, a quantum reality. Yeah, look, it, it, I always my, Peru is the same way. We're oil, we're uh, gold, zinc, copper, right? We had the best years during that dollar down U.S. The U.S. equity markets were the worst performing markets from 2003 to 2007. Emerging markets annualizing at 35 percent. Global developed, we're annualizing at 22%. It was the, you know, the, the, the amazing work that the politicians did in those South American countries right. that really got us out of there. It's funny you bring up Peru. I had a good friend of mine, Carlos Garingo, who worked with me, and he was probably like you. He's one of those Peruvians who went to the English school and hung out with all the guys who were either going to leave and go to the United States and become doctors or Wall Streeters, or they were going to go, or they would do that, do their MBA, and then go back to Peru and run the country. I'm eventually and, going to save the world. Specifically. Yeah, you know, yeah. and he showed me, he said, I've got this thing from this buddy of mine who runs, is like writing this for the finance ministry. We're going to set up this sovereign wealth fund in Peru, and we're going to take all this money, and we're going to, you know, with commodities high, and we're going to shove it away, and then we'll have this counter-cyclical fund that we can build roads and do all this thing. And I said, okay, mate, so you better put a bloody great big dollar hedge on. And he went, what? And I said, because that's all it, the only reason why you've got this money to play with is because the dollar's weak. And then the dollar base. hundred percent. And my brother is about, well, I shouldn't say, but anyway, he's in, he's still works in Peru. He's here with me in Cayman, but 
I'm telling him like your heydays are coming. Right. This is going to be the best time for you. He's an M&A. You know, people are kind of, I don't know if I should do business in Peru. Well, they're going to be coming. It's going to be fantastic. And it just depends on getting those conditions to weaken that dollar. Now, right here, right now, I'm actually short dollars. We've been short dollars for a bit. Um, and uh, we're long dollar yen, uh, which is kind of a counter one, but we short euros. Probably a little, we were a little early, but it's beginning to work. Um, and See, this is why yeah. I love you, man. You just, yeah. you just, you just sold us on something. You want to buy it back? What the hell? No, but it's just, it's the point is, <laughs> the point is, you know, this is now the pain environment, right? We're yep. punching the Fed. We're beginning to try and punch the Fed on the nose to get them to make the steps that initiate the next big trade. But it's a process of pain, and it's a process of um, crisis necessity. Yeah, change. crisis, and and, and, and <laughs> bad things happen in that environment, right? So you you know, and, and the dollar just doesn't go straight down. You know, it could, could squeeze a bit. I don't know whether it goes up that much, but you know, it's a trade. Amazing. I like Julian, William it's... Ekman's question there, uh, given your short-term negative views on the gold, but then your overall scenario for the coming years. Wouldn't that maybe uh, beget gold up? And I would just throw in uh, Bitcoin and some of the other cryptos. I'll, I'll, I'll try that again at you to see if this. We'll wrap it, it up with Bitcoin, of course. Oh, great, great. <laughs> the one that the one that everyone just gives me shit about. Um, the uh, so look, gold. Here's the thing: gold is the growth commodity it is the commodity that tends to do well in an environment of monetary debasement but no actual economic growth okay it's not that it necessarily does badly and i think in the environment that i'm talking about where you get the fed pegging it it will perform but other commodities may do a hell of a lot better and that's because they're the value plays. And that's where I've kind of shifted my focus. As I said, I have a core holding in gold, but the one, you know, the other precious metal I prefer is silver. Uh, ultimately, I think silver is going back up to 50 bucks. I do not think that gold is going to, you know, $4,000, right? Well, I don't. Is, Copper will outperform. Exactly we, we wrote a paper on a commodity paper on a like quantitatively based, how to, how do you get exposure to commodities? And part of the discussion is that people think that, Oh, inflation, it's either tips or gold, but sure. inflation actually, depending on the type where we are in the cycle will happen in softs and sure. energies and hards and, and, you know, hard, like go, uh, precious metals. Yep. It'll happen in tips in different ways. Yep. So it's just, you know, this idea that you're kind of covered with this one precious metal is just not right, right? No. You need to diversify your inflation edge. And it's not um, just inflation, right? When growth comes through, when true sure. growth comes through, copper outperforms gold. It doesn't mean gold goes down. It just means copper is a better trade than gold. Massive growth during that the, the mid-noughts. Right. And it was the same idea. Right. So it just this this just like this is the only way seems a little silly. You want to be a, you want to have a thoughtful commodity portfolio that can take advantage of the opportunities Correct. when they arrive. Correct. And, I, and that's what I said. We shifted more into, you know, we've been buying things like DBA, which is this agricultural, you know, softs play. It's not mm -hmm. the greatest physical thing to actually trade, but there's not many great ETFs around. There. I'm sure they'll be out in six months time. Uh, but yeah, so I'm, I, I don't have a gold trade on at the moment. Yeah. Well, thank Julian. It's been an hour and a half. 
I met your wife over email, um, and we have like a William Ackman says thanks. You want to tell Gretchen hello? So we'll we'll end it with that. Thank you so much for your time. Been a long time fan. Pleasure. And, Thank uh, you very much, Jen. We'll, we hope to have you again at some point to discuss risk parity. Yeah, we have yeah, to great. do we have to do it later in the day so I can actually have my beer too. All right, yeah, great conversation. Yeah, I can drink Thanks it. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, we can drink in the morning. It's fine. <laughs> the uh, the the other if you make it down to Grand Cayman, make sure you come drop us a line as well. Sounds like a plan. Thank you, James. Thank you. All right, Thanks for joining us so much, man. Pleasure. See you. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.